0: Talk Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Porritt from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission, to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams, and with my coaching, help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com and follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash coachandrew. If you're listening live and you have a question, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. You'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number 1, I'll know you have a question. We also have a live chat room right on the show page where you can feel free to join in. My very special guest tonight is former ballerina Zapora Cars. Zipporah is the author of a book about her battle with juvenile diabetes called The Sugarless Plum, A Ballerina's Triumph Over Diabetes. I knew Zipporah in New York City in the earliest days of my own journey into personal development back when Zipporah was only 18 years old and just getting her pointe shoes wet with the legendary George Balanchine and the New York City Ballet. Today, in addition to being an author, Zipporah is a ballet coach and teacher, a diabetes advocate, a public speaker, and is involved with George Balanchine Trust. So, Zipporah, are you with me?
2: I'm here. And
1: is this the good Zipporah? (laughs) <laughs> I think that's the only one that exists now Okay, good that, That's how I'm letting you know I read the book, okay? That's right You should tell the viewers <laughs> what that means Oh, why don't you tell the viewers what that means? The viewers The viewers uh, the, the listeners, listeners. Yeah, the listeners. excuse
2: me The Our listeners Well, when I when I was a child I was Well, I'm a Gemini And Geminis are known for having two personalities And I certainly did And so I was named in the family um, the good Zipporah and the bad Zipporah, and I was uh, labeled that as well, so it was always a family joke, which one I was, and I didn't take very well to it. <laughs> it uh, I was often the bad Zipporah because I'd get really pissed off when uh, they assumed I was going to be the bad Zipporah, so I'd become her.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad that I'm speaking to the good Zipporah. Oh, yeah. The only, the only Zipporah I've ever known. Right, thank you And, you know, it's amazing I have not seen you in at least a quarter of a century Uh-huh Which, it really doesn't seem possible By the way, you're only the second Zipporah I've ever known Uh-huh My grandmother's sister, who was my great-aunt, was named Zipporah And so that, of course, makes you extra special for me Oh, thank you Oh, you're welcome So I was, like, telling you before the show started That uh, I read your book on my Android phone using a Kindle app And just to put things in perspective, the last time I saw you, there was no World Wide Web. There were companies like AOL that were just being launched. The only e-books were books about the letter E, which means they were very, very short. (laughs) So, So here I am reconnecting with you thanks to Facebook, talking to you at length with unlimited long distance, which was quite expensive in the 1980s, reading your book electronically on my phone, which uh, and I should add that phones back then were hardwired into the wall unless your name is Gordon Gecko right in which case they were the size of a rectangular football and I'm mentioning all these distinctions for a reason we we'll, we're going to get to in a, in a in a few minutes but I I just wanted to to point that out but first of all I would like to hear a little bit about your story as a dancer because there is there's two there's two things that you're coming to me as on the show today, one is that you're, you're an inspirational person who has had a tremendous battle, a uh, personal battle with uh, juvenile diabetes uh, for many years. And you also are somebody who is very well known as in the world of dance, which it's a lot, some people in my audience may not have any inkling about that. Most people will know of a few names in the world. Uh, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your story.
2: Great. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. And let me just start by saying, growing up in the in the 70s in California, I didn't know much about dance either. I I never saw ballet. It wasn't anything that was on my mind. But I do have a family history of dancers. My grandmother was uh, a vaudeville. Uh, had a solo act in vaudeville and actually was a little a child star. She was on stage at about 12, 13 years old. And my mother was a modern dance major at Juilliard. And while she didn't go on to become a professional dancer, dancing was always a love of hers, and she continued throughout her life to be a folk dancer. And the reason my mother didn't feel she could ever be a professional dancer when she was at Juilliard is because she didn't have early formal training. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother had her in acts when my grandmother was a uh, getting older, she always had her daughters in acts, but she never put them in actual dance classes. So my mother didn't get the technical part of dancing that would give her the confidence to actually go on and have a career. She had a lot of artistic ability. So she wanted to give her daughters the chance, should they ever want to become dancers. So when my sisters and I were old enough, she asked us if we would like to take ballet classes. And my older sister said yes, so I said yes. And my mother actually found this amazing teacher near where we lived in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And this teacher that she happened to find always wanted to dance for the great George Balanchine, who is the person who brought dance to America from Russia. And he, he created the New York City Ballet, and he really is instrumental in, in much of dance today, most of dance in, in the U.S., and is, mm-hmm. is well, well acclaimed in the world, is a great choreographer. But my teacher had flat feet. Do you know the difference between, we all know, a spatula, where
0: it's straight (laughs) up and
2: down, as opposed to a banana?
0: Right. Well, if
2: you're a dancer, you want your foot to have an arch like a banana. You don't want the spatula. So my teacher had a foot like a spatula, and she couldn't thus get up over on to her points when you stand on the tips of your toes. Mm -hmm. She couldn't do it, so she was never going to be a ballerina. So she put all of her passion into teaching. And she really became this great teacher and George Balanchine heard of her and actually came to visit the school, watched her teach, invited her to come to New York and to watch him teach, watch the New York City Ballet. So every year she would go to New York and she'd soak it up and absorb everything that was happening in New York and then she'd come to our little ballet studio in the San Fernando Valley and she would teach us everything she saw. So I had no idea that as a a very young child, which I hated ballet at first by the way and I really Mm -hmm. wanted to quit but I hung in there, and that's another lesson. You hang in there, and you keep working, you keep working, and then finally things start to shift, and especially as a dancer because your body's your instrument. So when your body really starts to take form in, in, in a strength,
0: a mm-hmm. technical
2: strength, which is why my mother put us in ballet early, something starts to happen to you. So from my perspective, I knew nothing about George Balanchine or what I was learning. But what was happening to me at a very young age was that those moments in the ballet studio, something would happen and it was as if I was no longer thinking. I was no longer aware of the things going wrong in my life. Mm
0: -hmm. I I
2: had a very dysfunctional home life. My parents had been divorced. My mother had a boyfriend that was being physically abusive with me. I didn't want to be at home. I was pretty miserable in, in my personal life as a child. But those moments in the ballet studio, it wasn't that I was escaping my world it was that I was finding my world I was finding something that was true that was honest that felt more me than any other place in my life and that's all I wanted to do and so I just wanted to be in that ballet studio and so I got stronger and stronger and long story short my teacher saw my potential made sure I auditioned for New York and at first I I, I went to New York they have summer programs like summer camps, people right. go away. So I went away to New York for the summer when I was uh, 14, the first time. I was so intimidated by New York City, and they were all so good, and these uh, these were all the little girls that grew up wanting to be ballerinas, and and I was very intimidated. And I came home, and I thought this is not for me. But I was between the ages of 14 to 15. That's when my mother's boyfriend it got really, really bad at home. And so what I would do is, rather than going home after school, I would take the bus right to the ballet studio. And my teacher had a policy that you could take any class underneath whatever level you were, in, you were in for free. And so I was in the highest level. So I could take as many classes under my level as I wanted to without having to pay for it. So I was taking four classes a day. And when I went back to New York the following summer, I had improved so much, and I had grown five inches, and I was a different dancer, really. And they took notice to me, and they asked me if I would stay on as a winter student. Mm -hmm. And when I went home, I really, I I still, I had no idea. It wasn't really my my dream to be a professional dancer. I was just loving the experience of dancing, but I always had it in my head that I was going to do something. I wanted to be a veterinarian, or I always wanted to teach children who were blind and deaf. There were other things that I, that I sought after to do in my life. I really never thought of the life of a ballerina as something I would do. But when they asked me to stay for the winter, what happened was I didn't even tell my mother because we didn't have any money for anything like that. And, but I wanted my teacher to be proud of me. I knew this was her dream, and I knew how proud she would be that they had actually asked me to stay on. And so she asked me how it had gone for the summer, and I said, well, I, th- I think that they like me better this year. And she said, I really, why? And I said, well, they asked me to stay for the winter. And she grabs me by the hand, and she runs with me through the studio to where my mother is waiting to take me home, screaming, you're going, you're <laughs> going. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's crazy. What have I done? <laughs> you know, when I
1: read that in the book, I mean, I actually got goosebumps.
2: Yeah. It was it was one of those moments in life. It would have never happened had I not had a teacher that was so convinced of what my future held for me. I, I had I would have never gone back on my own. I would have never even told my mother. So I, I really attribute to this beautiful, amazing teacher that I had that that saw what my life could be. And basically she told my mom that I had to go, and my mom said, well, if it's support, what support wants, of course she can do it. And I basically looked at my mom saying, Mom, <laughs> I'm only 15, are you crazy? But on the other hand, I was unhappy at home. Mm-hmm. And so as scared as I was as a 15-year-old to embark on something, I had no idea. At this point, I had not even ever seen a live ballet performance. I had not yet seen George Balanchine. I had not yet seen the New York City Ballet. It was a foreign world to me, except for my experience in the classroom of my own body. So I was really pretty terrified, but the option of staying home in the abusive situation I was in mm-hmm. was actually worse. And that's that's an interesting thing about fear, is that is that fear looked better to me. Fear of the unknown and the terror of what was ahead was actually more inviting than staying stuck in my situation. That was just
1: miserable for me. Is, 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 am I crazy, or like, if you didn't have this abusive situation, you might not ever have become a ballet dancer?
2: No, I might have become a ballet dancer, but I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have taken the chance mm. as a 15 year old. I probably, if, if I had felt safer at home, it's a, it's a pretty interesting. Who knows? Who who knows? If I had felt safer. Um, odds are, I might have said no. I'm too attached to my family. I'm not ready to leave yet. But I was. I felt more like I'm out of here. I'm ready to get out of here. And I. And I was. I was. When I went to New York, I felt like I found my family. I found other kids who were like me. Mm-hmm. And I, I. You. You really. I found my. My tribe. Found my tribe. Nice. And it was. It was extremely. Um, that moment where I just felt like I had no idea that life could be so creative, so inspiring, uh, work that hard.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, the work
2: was intense, but you were constantly on this verge of the extreme emotions that you feel in everything, and then you channel them into your body as a dancer. So it's a very passionate career. Because you're really taking every all the angst. You know, you're 15, you're 16 years old. You have a lot of angst, a lot of childhood oh, yeah. angst, especially when you've got some dysfunction going on, mm-hmm. which I think most people maybe at, of our generation did
0: mm-hmm.
2: or do. And, 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 you know, what a beautiful thing to find a place where you can put it, where you can take that energy and you can turn it into something that actually transforms you. And it becomes, it really is addictive. It's completely addictive.
1: And it's something that, that also has a big effect on other people because, it, you know, it's a thing of beauty. It's a thing of uh, of art that has, you know, affected the, the world. of so many people who have enjoyed that.
2: Well, that's an interesting comment on performers because I think when you're the kind of performer that's able to be honest in your expression, mm-hmm. you do touch other people because they feel that on- authenticity. Mm-hmm people feel when a performer has a certain depth of an experience or an emotion and it's not just something that you're putting on and you're acting or do, right. you're trying to do you're not removed from the experience you are and you're actually present in something that is very real to yourself and then it becomes a shared moment with an audience and that's one of the the great things of being an artist
1: mhm no, I. Now you. When you started out, you had uh, two sisters, was it, who, who were who were taking dance classes? That's that right.
2: Yes. And
1: one one became also a professional dancer, Romy. Yes, my younger and, sister. And your older sister. That sounded like, as I'm reading in the book, it sounded like you felt, in the, at least in the beginning, that she she was, you know, m- more talented than you, or she had something yes, else. Yes, I did. In
2: yes, I. I felt like both. My, I always mm-hmm. felt a little trapped in the middle of two extremely uh-huh. talented sisters. One. My older sister, Michelle, um, she could jump and she could turn, and she was very, very strong. And then my younger sister, Romy, had these long, long legs, and she was so flexible, and she just had this natural, natural ability. So I was always somehow trying to figure out what I had. <laughs> I couldn't quite put a, put my finger on what I had. So... Um, I, I, yes, I saw them both. as extremely talented. And, and how and come Michelle
1: didn't uh, didn't choose that?
2: Well, Michelle could have. I think that she, you know, she opted a little bit more for a normal, a normal life. She wanted to go to college. She wanted <laughs> right. to be a cheerleader. She actually ended up having six children today. She's wow. got a beautiful family. She got married pretty young. Yes. So it just, you know, I think she knew pretty early on that mm-hmm. it, you know, it's 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 not an easy life. If you yeah. if you don't have to do it, it's not the life for you. It's very very difficult. Our our hours, you know, you're you're dancing. You take class in the morning as a professional. You rehearse up to six hours a day, and then you perform in the evening. So you are really dancing all day long. So you you have to love it so much that there's no option for you in life. To do something other than and and michelle Michelle knew early on she started to get injured, she started to gain weight, and I think it was her way the the putting weight on she couldn't quite admit that it's not what she wanted right. and I think because our our teacher was also so supportive of her, you know I think that there's a dynamic where you think you're supposed to do it because everybody says you're so good, and she 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 probably thought she wanted it in some ways, but she was at odds with it, so she started putting on some weight and just got injured, and then it just wasn't for her. But wow. she has a, a great, a great, great life. She's an amazing human being and has an amazing family.
1: And uh, and and uh, Romy, uh, when did she uh, she retired from dancing?
2: Yes, Romy's retired now also, but she followed me. She also she's three years younger. And she moved to New York three years after I did, and she got into the company three years after I did. She did leave the New York City Ballet before I did. Ah. She, um, she moved back to our home in Los Angeles. It was actually, though, because they were forming a, a ballet company here in Los Angeles that she was going to be a part of. So I think she danced for about nine years in mm-hmm. New York. I, I went for 16. Uh, so she, after about nine years, she came back to Los Angeles to dance, and that company ended up not happening, there were financial difficulties, so mm-hmm. she had been, she was married, and so she figured that was the right time for her to start her family, so she ah. had her, her son, and she, she's a teacher like I am today also, so she teaches, and she's also a natural childbirth instructor and a doula, and uh, she has an extremely talented son who is a, is a, t- plays tennis, uh, very, very talented, so she's a busy mom with all the tennis tournaments,
1: I, I, and I, as I told you when I first reconnected with you, I, I'll never forget the moment of seeing her in uh, in that movie with Judge Reinhold. Right, right. Um, and I'm sitting there in a movie theater, and it's like, Romy, you know? Right. And, and actually, I thought that was you next to her, but it was another dancer. But I was like, I had to like wait to the very last credits to make sure I, I wasn't losing my mind. No, you're not losing your mind. <laughs> what was
2: that one called?
1: That movie? I, I, can't remember. I can't remember the movie, but I was just talking about it the other day because I was by the Bethesda Fountain where there there was a scene where uh, that that Judge Reinald is uh, bicycling down the steps or some crazy scene. So he was like a, he was a cop who went to ballet school or Yeah,
2: it was something. something like
1: that. Yeah, I mean not the greatest movie in the world, but that's those, those are the exact two things that I remember about the movie. They that well, the, bicycling the dancer, and your
2: sister, right. The dancer you thought was me Everybody thought she and I were sisters. Ah. People didn't think that did not think Romey and I were sisters. They thought that she, her name is Margaret Tracy. Today she's the the director of the Boston Ballet School um in uh, obviously in Boston. Mhm. So uh so she's she's directing yeah. now but she she went on to be a principal dancer with the New York City Ballet and everybody thought we looked very much alike and that we were sisters, but we are not.
1: Well, now, now we anybody who ever thought that beside me is now corrected.
2: Right, exactly.
1: So, so you're you're going along in your career, and you have now something happens that really puts a a, a big monkey wrench into things.
2: Yes. Okay. So what happened was I got into the New York City Ballet, and the year I got in, I I was chosen by George Balanchine. Sadly, he passed away. And so I am the first group. I'm the last chosen by Balanchine, but the first group officially of Peter Martins, who is the director today of the New York City Ballet, mm-hmm. and Jer- uh, Jerome Robbins. They became the co-dire- co-directors of the New York City Ballet. And Jerome Robbins sadly passed away. I can't remember right now what what year it was. But they became my, my co-directors. And mm-hmm. very early on in my career, they both recognized my talent. Uh, Balanchine was known for picking young hopefuls out of the group. It's called the Corps de Ballet. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have to wait until somebody had been in the company for years and years and paid their dues and then it was time to put them in a solo role. If he saw somebody very young that he liked and they were in the in the in the back, he'd put he'd throw them in the limelight, see how they did. If they did great he'd give them keep giving them solo roles. If they didn't do so well, put them back in the group. So Peter Martins did the same thing with me. So my second year in the company. I think most people have heard of the Nutcracker. The Christmas story ballet, right? So my second year in the company, he picks me out of the group and he gives me the Sugar Plum Fairy, which is the leading role of the ballet. And all the reviews call my star my star. My my, my partner and I future stars of the ballet world and it was all very very exciting it's nothing i ever saw coming i thought it would be at least 10 years before i ever got a leading role i was just happy to be in the new york city ballet so it was it was exhilarating exciting everything the following year peter martin's the director was choreographing a new ballet and he picked me to be one of the leading ballerinas in that so having a, a piece created on you is a a big honor because there's something about you that has inspired them to create something on. Mm-hmm. So this was the, my next big incredible moment for me because I didn't see that one coming either. So it was unfortunately during that piece that I started to experience strange strange symptoms in my body. So when I when I say that he picked me for this piece, we're rehearsing this piece that we're preparing for a premiere, but meanwhile you're still performing every night other pieces. You're still dancing 12 hours a day, or 10, however many it is. And it's exhausting, incredibly exhausting. And then you've got the nerves of a big premiere coming up.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, something I wish I didn't have, personally, I always have had sleep issues. It's just been my thing. When I was a kid, I didn't sleep well. Whenever I get too much on my mind or I get nervous, I immediately can't sleep well, very well. Well, as soon as I, I took on the schedule with the New York City Ballet, all of the physical activity, the opposite of winding down happened to me i just i, could, I couldn 't I, my body would not wind down. I'd come home from the performance. all I want to do is go to sleep and i 'm just buzzing and i can 't wind down so Not only do I have this crazy schedule, but i 'm living on about i don 't know two or three hours of sleep a night
0: hmm.
2: i I personally think that that 's part of what started to break down in my system we, we'll never know we don't we don't know why auto autoimmune diseases happen to people but what happened was i was diagnosed with diabetes and that that in itself is a whole story in itself of right. how i even found out that's all in my book Um and it, it was a long journey just to get there to figure out what was going on with me but but i was diagnosed and in the beginning it, it, it's something you can't you can't take in. Denial is is real. It, it's real. You can't take it in. It does serve a purpose because I think you you have to be in a certain a certain amount of denial so that you'll keep going and also so that you you think that you are going to fight it and you're going to overcome it and you get determined to use your will. So it, 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 there's good parts of denial. I think when the denial wears off and. You start feeling the effects of the reality of how ill you feel and how mm-hmm. bad you feel. that's a whole nother thing so i sure. I experience both sides of all of that, and here I am in the midst of being a new member of the new York City ballet, and i haven't I haven't really proven myself yet. I've done some leading roles, and I'm this big potential star but but nowhere nowhere sitting in a place where I can sit there and say, "Oh, I'm really secure here, and I've proven myself." So I had a lot of anxiety over the company even knowing what was happening to me because the truth is, is you're only as good as your last performance was. Right. You're out. You're out. You can't you you can't hang in the game. Get out. You know it's what they say about New York. You know mm-hmm. I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. If you can't if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. So I really was in a big struggle over how to come to terms with what was happening to me. And and how to hold on to this beautiful life that I'd found for myself that, that I that I loved that I wanted. So um, <laughs> it was it was not easy. And uh, as as again, it's it's a long long story. But I was misdiagnosed because I was diagnosed in 1987, and they call the 80s the dark ages of diabetes today when they look back on the Mm eighties so I was diagnosed in a time when they really didn't know as much as they know today and it wasn't common for somebody, I was 21 years old It wasn't common for somebody in their early twenties to be diagnosed with the the type that was associated with with um, young kids which is the insulin dependent kind or it's called juvenile diabetes. So because I was in my twenties the doctors naturally assumed I had what's called adult onset or type two diabetes which is really a different disease. It's brought on by inactivity mm-hmm. and poor poor eating, you know, lifestyle choices. So they basically, they didn't even put me on insulin at first. And, you know, I'll tell you, there's a, there's a good part of thinking you have type 2 diabetes because type 2 diabetes can be reversed. So like denial, it, it served a purpose for me to think that I could cure myself of this type 2 diabetes that I thought I had. So I read everything I could about diabetes and what it meant and from everything that I read about type two diabetes, you know you had to eat better well i i I've always been a granola kid I'm a California girl was always really healthy but but in all honesty i i you know I was dancing like crazy, you start craving things. I, I was drinking a lot of coffee, which I never had a cup of coffee before I moved to New York. I didn't. I was never a big sweet eater. I was eating a lot of sweets. So I definitely knew that I could do better with what I was eating. Um, and I knew that my stress, you know, not sleeping well, I, I knew I had to fix that. I had to learn how to, you know, better coping mechanisms, better mm-hmm. better ways to deal with my own anxiety the, the pressure I was under for all these leading roles, I, I knew how to figure out how to deal with my own psychology better. What I couldn't figure out was the exercise part. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to exercise when you have type yeah. 2 diabetes, and I was exercising more than, it, there was no way I could exercise more, so that one threw me a little bit. But the other things I knew I could do better, and I actually did really, really well for about two years. I actually learned brought my blood sugar levels, which are what you want to do as a diabetic. You want to mm-hmm. bring your blood sugar levels down to a normal range. I actually, I actually did that. And so I, I, I thought, this is great. I, cure, I, I reversed my type 2 diabetes, and I was going to be the poster girl for curing myself of type 2 diabetes. Well, what I didn't know is there's something called the honeymoon phase of type mm. 1 diabetes, where for up to a period of two years, They don't know why the disease can appear to go into remission. So I'm sitting here in this this complete fantasy that I've cured myself. And the truth is, is I was really in something called the honeymoon phase. And after two years, no matter what I did, no no matter how many almonds or cans of tuna, because what I was doing was avoiding carbohydrates. Because carbohydrates are what will raise your, that require you to have more insulin. And as you're required to have more insulin in your body, that's where you. As a diabetic, a type 1 diabetic, I didn't have that. So I hope that if you need me to clarify more of the medical terms, I, I certainly can do that.
1: Sure. You know, my, my dad has type 2. Right. So I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the, the dietetic. Uh, uh, right, issues. with the car- the
2: carbohydrates, right. You want yeah. to limit your carbohydrates. Of course, you want to limit your sugar intake. You want to try and keep your blood sugar levels as balanced as you can so you don't have big ups and downs. So that that's that's really important for for everybody actually, for everybody actually. Mm-hmm. So so anyhow to, to end that part of the story up is that I finally ha- got a proper diagnosis, but I really didn't figure out what kind of diabetes I had until about my third or fourth year into my diagnosis. So when I realized I had type one diabetes, it was very difficult, and I I really didn't see how I was going to be able to continue as a performer because I had to go on insulin. And what happens is that insulin, when you exercise, it makes the shot that you're taking more effective. Hmm. But you never know how much more that shot's going to start working. Sometimes it works 10 times more, sometimes 20 times more, sometimes two times more. And and what happens is that if it overworks, that's where you hear of, the low blood sugars where the people start shaking and you have to give them juice or sugar so basically the challenge as of a performer a a ballerina is that you want to feel every part of your body you want to feel your fingertips you want to feel your toes you have to have your full full focus Mm -hmm. right so that you can execute what you want to do on stage both emotionally and physically and if my blood sugar levels were any bit too high or any bit too low I couldn't, feel, I couldn't feel my body in the same way. I couldn't focus. I couldn't feel my fingers. I couldn't, I couldn't use my muscles. I couldn't access what I needed for, for my performance. And it was extremely frustrating for me. So I was always trying to keep my blood sugar as close to normal and not mm-hmm. too high because the performance was so important to me. And the danger there is that I was constantly overshooting my insulin because the exercise would make that shot work more, more effectively. Oh. And all of a sudden I'm on stage and I'm shaking all the time. And it was just, it was, <laughs> it was like trying to walk a tightrope. And I, I never could fully figure out how much to take. Every piece I danced had a different aerobic rate, you know, a different amount of energy you're putting into it. So I never knew how much insulin to take at any given moment. So the whole thing was just so difficult to try to figure out. You want
1: me to keep talking about what happened well, I, next? I, let well, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> me, please. Yeah, I'll let you keep going. <laughs> um, you know, I'm just like a, a curious. Um, one thing I didn't really get a sense of from reading is uh, a lot of the things that you were going through when you were feeling them, and you're feeling, you know, frustrated. You're feeling shit. You're shaking. You're, you know, you're kind of you're a little beating yourself up and how you're performing. What was that obvious to other people or just to you?
2: You know, that's a very good question. I think that what was probably more obvious to, well, first of all, an audience probably would not notice that. The, 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 the people that I work with and my directors, the people who are able to have an eye about the details mm-hmm. and see if a dancer did a good performance or not,
0: mm-hmm.
2: those people would notice, yes. Yes, because physically, if your body is not, executing what it needs to execute if i didn't jump high enough on that jump that they know i usually can do they know something's up and see that was the pressure is that you're you're only as good as i said as your last performance right. so if you're not living up to your potential you know what, what can they do about it you didn't live up to it and and the, the thing about being a live a live performer is it's it's not just enough to be good you have to be good consistently yes you have to get out there night after night and prove you're reliable Mm -hmm. responsible and consistent and that was so hard for me because i didn't know (laughs) i was in over my head and Mm -hmm. the other thing is i didn't at that time again not to say doctors are bad but i didn't have doctors that understood how athletic my lifestyle was. They didn't, you know. I said, "I'm a ballerina. I'm dancing all day long." They say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Take this amount of insulin. Yeah, it could have killed me. The amount of insulin I was taking, I could have been killing myself all mm. the time on stage." But I didn't. I, I wasn't, I wasn't communicating because I didn't know, and they weren't communicating with me because they didn't know. So it was really, I, I was, lear, I was learning the whole thing, and there was nobody to talk to because there was no other ballerina. Doing what I had, what I was trying to do, and and
1: for a good reason,
2: because <laughs> it was so hard.
1: Yeah, but I would imagine to. I would imagine that, uh, that you know, since most people, as you said, get juvenile diabetes when they're juveniles. That's uh, right. They, they would have stopped or not gone there in the first place to become a professional dancer.
2: Yes, and 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 people often ask me, had I been diagnosed as a kid, do I think I would have been a professional dancer? And I don't think I would have. I think think the fact that I hung in there and did did go on to become a soloist is because I already was in the company doing leading roles before my diagnosis. So I already had tasted that life, and I'd already been seen by the people who were important and my potential. I, I think it's very difficult if you're trying to get somewhere and people know about your condition as much as I tell my students and I tell people I'm talked to about. Um, you know, you, you you don't want you don't want to feel like people are going to judge you. You want to be able to communicate your situation with them. The, the honest truth is, people do judge,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and 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 rightly so because if you're going for you know a position in the New York City Ballet, again, like I said, it's not there's no specialty cases there. You, you know, there's not a category for. It. We have room for three people with a disease. <laughs> you know, you you know, if you can be there with a disease and prove that you you're fine and it's not going to keep you from doing your work, then great.
1: There's no wheelchair ramp. Is what there's you're no,
2: that's right. There's no wheelchair ramp. <laughs> so so the task for me was to figure out. You know, and and I didn't know. I didn't know if I could do it. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was really to figure out. Can I? Can I hang at this 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 level? You know, with the New York City Ballet, can I, can I do it with taking insulin all day long, every day? And, you know, it was wow. it was a day-to-day question that i wake up some morning and say, today's the day I'm going to go in and I'm going to go to my director and say, this has been great. Thank you so much. It's time to go <laughs> to college and find mm-hmm. another career for myself and and i and i really i i actually i actually was going to do that and you want me to tell you the story sure okay well i'm 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 a pretty analytical person and i i really decided it was time to quit and so every day that was the day and every day instead of walking towards the director's office my feet would go towards the, the rehearsal room, and and I kept saying to myself, just one, just one more performance. I'd look at the schedule and I'd see a certain ballet was going, and I'd say I have to dance that one more time. And I just had to get on stage, and I it was it was that it was that addiction of of of, of the stage, and then and then I was caught because I was addicted to the stage, but the stage was the very place that was reflecting to me my heartbreak because. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't the dancer I once was. And, you know, I know you and I have talked about um, Betty Buckley and her beautiful performance in Cats. Uh, I forget the name of that cat that sings uh, Memories.
1: Is something Ezra Re- Bella or something? Yeah.
2: Like. Well, that, Re- that Re- is Re- the song. That is the song I was. I, would, I, I honestly, I felt like this shriveled up old cat that was looking back at my youth and my innocence singing, mm-hmm. I remember a time, and I'd sing it for you mm-hmm. if I could, if I had a voice, <laughs> but I don't. I remember a time they I knew what happiness was. <laughs> <laughs> you can sing it. Oh, thank
0: you. You know,
2: I, I, I remember a time I knew what Happy Witness was. I honestly felt, I was all of 24 or 25 years old, and I felt like my life was over. I felt I'd lost my innocence. I lost my youth. And so while the stage was the closest thing to to something that had meaning and connection to me of who I was, it also was the place that reflected what I'd become and what I'd lost in my life, mm. and it was a terrible, painful heartbreak. And so in my analysis, and I was journaling a lot and I was writing a lot, I was trying to figure out why I couldn't come to terms with quitting. What I realized is that if I quit, I, act, I would have been using diabetes as an excuse because mm. the truth was, was that quitting would have actually been easier for me because it was actually... More painful to be on stage and feel that level of heartbreak that I was in, I mean I was really i was heartbroken, I was devastated, mm. and so I wanted to quit, and I actually was pushing myself to quit so it was it was the part of me that knew that i need, that 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 it wasn't right to quit and i had I, I had to find a way to do this and that I could find a way to do this and so when I realized that quitting was a way out, and that I'd always wonder what I could have done if I had just hung in and tried harder and figured out the right way to eat and the right amount of insulin to take. And and one of my biggest, most important lessons was to let go of the perfectionist part of myself that had to have a perfect performance by having perfect blood sugar levels. I had to realize that sometimes my blood sugars, it was safer for me to have them a little bit higher so that I didn't go too low and risk passing out on stage and that if that meant i didn't feel my toes and i didn't jump as high and my director was going to look at me like i wasn't you know as good as i should have been okay then see i had to come to terms with that that it was more important that i accept my own imperfection than throw the whole thing out and that was that that was that was the most important thing for me to realize that that's what i had to deal with and i had to stay and i had to look that in the face look at look at myself in the mirror and and accept that i i wasn't going to be perfect and that it was more important that i stay and that i figure out if i could do this so i didn't look back with regrets and 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 always wonder and so I so I did stay and I of course I told myself that after 3 or 4 years of staying if it didn't work out get out <laughs> you know mm. get out it's okay to get out but it was still too soon it was still too early in in my diagnosis and me coming out of denial and figuring the whole thing out and so that's why I did stay and and I didn't always have the best performance and every day I stood stood still, still did wonder mm. if if this was Smart of me to try to do. or If I was being crazy for for trying to do this, but I I was promoted after all of this to soloist, and I did dance. I danced for 13 years after my diagnosis, and I had great experiences. I I have to say I was never quite the same in my heart as I was before my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I I do think it's not it's 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 not an in innocence in the way. That, that I once felt it in my heartbreak that I was longing for an innocence that I had lost. But I think a certain maturity comes in as you experience things in your life and you choose different paths. And really what happened is I became a different person. And I became somebody who didn't really need the stage in the same way.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that that... I don't know that my performances were ever as good. <laughs> but but, but, but I,
1: clearly, though, you I mean you got promoted. I, mean, that I did get promoted, not yes.
2: Dead. Yes, but, but I'm talking about, you know, as an artist, I yes. think when, when there's a need for this, the expression, when I was telling you about that 15-, 16-year-old kid who had so much angst inside myself, mm-hmm. and being on stage and dancing all day, and you have somewhere to put all your emotions, and, and you're so physical with your body, you know, it, it never went back to that to that need of the stage of, to express myself in the same way. It, it's more you become a mature artist and you you experience a different part of of what performing can be. And it was beautiful and I loved it. But when it was done, I was ready. You know, I was ready to let it go. I, I didn't look back, and I've never regretted leaving. And 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 it was time to move on. And be, and I teach today. And I staged the ballets that I was so fortunate to dance. And so it was never – I became a different person, I think, is what I'm trying to articulate, is that the person that I became um, is somebody who is much more interested in in the human dynamic and why things happen to us and how we deal and how we cope. And that's when I started speaking at some of these diabetes conferences and talking to other people and actually finding – meaning in articulating to people who were in their own denial and who weren't able to see how that wasn't serving them or, or was serving them. But I think that the whole process of dealing with the diabetes and coming through through it in the way that I did and learning how to deal with my own personality, my own dysfunction, my own anxieties has given me um, some sort of Peace. <laughs> I feel I feel a great sense of peace that I've been able to kind of look myself in the face through great adversity in, in a way that I just didn't think I could uh could handle the lot that was given to me.
1: What's that expression that uh, you know God doesn't give you anything you can't handle something? Yeah, like right,
2: it. let's hit him for that one. Yeah. <laughs> that was a bad plan. <laughs> uh, there
0: you.
1: Um Bad so, plan. So what what originally got you to say, I need to write about this? Well, I
2: started speaking at diabetes conferences right when right when I left the New York City Valley. That was in 1999. And I started speaking about it, and I never talked about it when I was dancing, because you always think if you start talking about what's really going on, and your director hears you, he's not going to let you on stage in leading roles anymore. Right. He's going to say, geez, I can't let her dance. So I, I, I found this great... Um, <laughs> it was pretty freeing to start to talk about what i was experiencing and going through and then all of a sudden i you know people were were having a response to me and i think it was more my ability to articulate my feelings and my process than anything because it's not like any of them were going to be a ballerina so it's not that they identified with what i did in my life but they identified with the process that i went through of denial and the difficulty communicating with my doctor And and some of my personal struggles. So I would say for about 10 years, I constantly had people telling me, you really need to write this down. You should really write a book. And I kept thinking, geez, you know, it's not so bad what I went through. People have it much worse than I do. So I never really took it seriously. But back in uh, 2002, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. And she went through so many of the same things that I did. She was misdiagnosed. She had... Doctors that she couldn't communicate with that didn't listen to her. She struggled. I saw her in deep denial, and, and the clock was ticking. We didn't have time to waste with denial. I mean, I had to get her. I had to try to get her out of that denial. And and it just a light went on inside me, and I just said, you know, what I went through, it's more universal than just diabetes. And it wasn't just about me thinking, oh, what I went through wasn't so bad. It was it was more about we all. We all are going to deal with a health crisis at some point, and many many people, you know, we all we have to learn to communicate with our doctors. All the issues I went through, I think, are were, I saw that it was a bigger a bigger thing than just my own personal experience. And I don't know, I just got a little possessed. <laughs> I got a little possessed and thought that's it. I'm writing it, but but it was a difficult process to actually to get a book to get a book published was difficult. Sure. What ha- what happened is that I I envisioned it more as a kind of a self help book, maybe a, a guide to exercise and diet and and self help tools of the, what I'm talking about, the emotional process of dealing and coping, and then my story intertwined with that. And I couldn't get an agent, and I tried for two years to get an agent, and then finally I found an agent, and she said, you know, there's just too many self help books. I can't I can't sell this as a self help book. She says, but I could sell this as a memoir and i thought oh my god <laughs> what have i gotten myself into <laughs> so that's that's how it became the memoir and um that that was difficult that was not not difficult because i have a problem talking about what what happened but it's very difficult to
1: pick and choose what to tell about all of our lives. You know, we have so many stories. Yeah, I would imagine you could probably, if, uh, you know, if if left unhindered, you could probably write 10 more of them and oh, let, yeah. write out of things to say. Oh,
2: yes. Oh, yes. So, so yeah, so the the, the difficulty in writing, people always ask me, it was a very cathartic writing. I'm thinking, not really, because, I you know, I told my story so many times, so I've been so vocal about my process and what happened to me, but it was really deciphering out What's relevant and what's important to tell, and and also you know I don't you don't want to harm anybody you don't want to sure. hurt anybody in your life by telling something that they did to you, so it's it, it's difficult but yet you want your story to be interesting and honest and real
1: and you know and you 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 were uh, didn't put in too many names but uh, boy you got me angry at a couple of doctors let me tell you yeah,
2: oh yes yes
1: <laughs> uh, yeah and you, and, you know I a had l- you, and you know. I felt
2: really bad I mean even that I'm thinking oh they're you know they help so many people and. You know, you don't want to disrepute anybody, but, yeah. you know, you have to tell the truth also.
1: Now, you, you you had mentioned earlier that you did a lot of journaling. Did the journaling, did you go back to those journals in your writing?
2: To, yes, I did, yes. Yeah, the ones that I still had, yes, that was a trip, <laughs> to, <laughs> to go back and find those journals. I'm thinking, oh, poor me. <laughs> you know, you're reading
1: what you... What you went through, you think, God, poor girl, did any of that seem like that, that I did I actually write that what, 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 no, what no
2: no no I, I remember I remember writing, and I remember exactly
1: mm-hmm.
2: how I felt when I was going through it, and I just thought, gosh, I felt really bad, I felt really bad for myself, but you know it 's not a bad thing to have compassion for for yourself and what sure. you went through so i 'd say more that i just I, I had a deep level of compassion for my struggle. And and I think what I did is I, I I saw how much it all mattered to me, and sitting now, from where I am, as mm-hmm. old as I am now, and you know my wise old years, <laughs> you think, oh God, it wasn't such a big deal. Why did everything have to be so important? And and you know you're willing to risk your life for a part or somebody's approval, you know, and you get to a place in your life where you just realize that that. None of that was was as important as you thought that it was, and you just feel so sorry that that we go through those experiences, and mm-hmm. and people are that important to us, and their opinion was that important. It, there's, there, I'm sad for that.
1: Yeah. Because so I I was uh, in the beginning of the show I was talking about um, you know how things have changed uh, you know technology and how things were when I last saw you, and one of the reasons I was thinking about those things was. When you first uh, was diagnosed, when you first were diagnosed, and you were you had to deal with insulin and all these things. There's a lot of differences in the way things have uh, the treatments are today. It sounds like from what you write are writing about.
2: Yes, that's true. I still do what I do. There's there's something called the pump
0: mm-hmm. that many
2: people are on, and that's actually a, a, a little little monitor that you can attach to yourself. And and it, and it will give you a constant little stream of insulin going into you, but i mm-hmm. I never opted to use any of those as a dancer uh, in in the days when I was still dancing, they were still too big. They're much smaller now, but i mm-hmm. I never use them. I still use I still use shots but but what I will say is that the monitors that give us our blood sugar reading, my, my monitor today takes four seconds, whereas when I was still dancing, it took two minutes. So before I had to go on stage, I'm waiting two minutes to find out what my blood sugar level is, whereas today it's four seconds to find out. So that, that's a pretty, pretty big difference. The other thing is in the timing of the insulin, when I was still performing, the insulin could take anywhere from a half an hour to two hours to start working. So you had to try and time it before you went on stage. Today it can start working in 15 minutes. So the insulins are, are much more effective. Even even that, there are short acting insulins and there are long acting insulins, so at night I take a twenty four hour insulin that's in my body for twenty four hours and even that is more effective in the way that it's utilized within the body so it's it's a it's easier to take care of yourself today with the diabetes, but with that said, exercise is still going to have the effect right. on on those levels see i'm as a teacher I'm not putting out the kind of energy that I did as a dancer. So I'm not walking that tightrope in my life anymore. So I don't have those extremes of constantly being afraid that I'm going to plummet too low and might mm-hmm. pass out. It just, doesn't, it just doesn't happen for me anymore. So it's really living a life as an extreme athlete, which a ballerina is, that, that you really have to be careful with those insulin levels. But, but what you're saying, yes, the technology is, is very, very different and 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 it's it's easier to take care of yourself as a diabetic, and also there's a lot more information about diet back in the eighties, they had diabetics on a high carbohydrate diet wow that's that's the all the doctors were telling me to eat a high carbohydrate diet today we all know don't eat a lot of carbohydrates, and we all there's just a lot more information I think about a healthy diet the healthy fat you know fats are okay, mm-hmm. fats are yep. not something to be afraid of. When I was first diagnosed, we didn't know any of these things, so the whole thing was it was just a different a different journey and and now I think that the information that somebody who's newly diagnosed will get it will take them right to the right path, whereas it took me probably nine or ten years to find that path.
1: So so and I I was also wondering when you're talking about taking care of yourself how is taking care of you for yourself as a dancer with diabetes different for those who are not dancers or not in professions that are as demanding on your body or your time Well for me it it was it was extremely extremely
2: important because the way you feel in your body the elasticity in your muscles are what allows you to be a a better dancer mm-hmm. and so what happens is first of all a diabetic produces more lactic mm-hmm. acid we all know what lactic acid is it's that pain you feel in your muscles after you've worked out
0: oh, so yeah. a diabetic
2: a dancer feels a tremendous amount of lactic acid anyhow but a diabetic has more lactic acid so I had constant muscle pains but we, the other thing that we all know about today there's a lot of talk about anti-inflammatory diets. You heard of these? They're, They're talking about how a lot of the problems that happen in our bodies are from inflammation. So you want to eat a diet that keeps the inflammation down. So for me as a dancer, it was very important for me to try to eat in a way that I kept the inflammation down in my body. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. So basically everybody could do well by eating the way that I learned how to eat. Mm-hmm. But I was in a more severe and heightened situation. It was it was uh, a more, for me, a do or die situation. It was, I wasn't gonna have a career if I didn't figure out how my muscles could properly work. And so this was all part of the, 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 the puzzle, was figuring out how to eat in a way that I wasn't in constant pain. So it wasn't just the taking insulin, that was the problem for me. Mm-hmm. It was how to co- deal with the the distress in my body, and then of course my sleep problems, which only got worse when my muscles were in in a lot of pain.
0: Wow. Yeah, it, it was
2: it
1: was it was a, it was a journey. It was a journey. By the way, did you ever see that there was a movie I remember from many years ago with Mary Tyler Moore that involved a young dancer with, yeah, di- with diabetes? The dancer had diabetes. Yeah, like her, her, it was her daughter, I believe, in the movie, and the daughter, uh, you know, she dies of it. I believe. I,
2: I do remember seeing this, but it I think it first, was before. I think it was before I was diagnosed.
1: Yeah, it must it have been it in was the early eighties. A long time ago. And I haven't seen it since it was on, but that was that's when she let the world know that she had been battling juvenile diabetes all her life. Right. Right. And that was that movie. I think she won an Emmy or something for that.
2: Right. No, I, you know, I, I saw it before I was diagnosed, and then I didn't remember it after my diagnosis. I, my, my stepmother tried to get in touch with Mary Tyler Moore um, when I was first diagnosed, but somehow we never connected.
1: Real, so you've never—I would have thought you—you you would have heard from her by now.
2: I—I I would have thought so, also. She should oh. be calling
1: you, and I'm yeah. going to have a word with <laughs> Mary her. Mary Moore, you should be calling me. I'm calling you know, Dick I, I, Van Dyke to, to call her.
2: That's right. That's, that's right. <laughs> 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 I'm sure our paths will ca- will uh, pass it cross at some point uh, because we both work for the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation, and right. and I'm sure she must know. I'm sure she knows about me. Because I've, there have been many articles written about me with the diabetes, but no, we've never, we've never uh, spoken.
1: Oh. So I have, I have a couple of l- little things to talk about. We only have a few minutes left, believe it or not. This hour is shooting by.
2: Because uh, I talk so
1: much. <laughs> no, but you have great stuff. I, I I I can listen to you all night. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so w- uh, one thing I I made a bunch of notes, but only going to talk about a couple of them. Like when I was reading the book, I wrote some notes to remember. I got to ask you about this. There was a moment when you were fifteen years old and you were watching Nureyev watch working out between barishnikov and Peter Martins taking right. a class together. that must have been like what a what an amazing piece of time in your life well that was that was the time when I moved to New York, and mm-hmm. I told you i hadn 't really
2: ever seen a ballet mm-hmm. and I walked into this world and i I was speechless i I really felt would not say church, but I'd say I'd say I walked into God's kingdom. I walked yeah. into a world of gods. They were all gods, and I just I felt that I I, I was honored. I was grateful to even be able to witness what I was witnessing. That, that's how I felt. It was just it was such high creativity mm-hmm. and and people all at the height of of their art and they all come together and they're all and but they're workers, dancers yeah. are workers. That's that is the beauty. They some of them have big egos, but it it's it's not like a Hollywood star. They 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 work. They're in that sure. studio sweating. And it's it's just great to see these great talented people all just working and and right. for me as a 15-year-old, I really I felt honored just to be witnessing what I
1: was witnessing. Wow. So uh, we actually have less than a minute to go. So first of all, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Coach's Corner. Oh, thank you. A thrill for me. And uh, everyone should uh, buy your book. Oh, thank (laughs) you. Absolutely. And there will be. I'm going to put a link uh, on my page if anybody wants to get it. And um, anything, anybody, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, do you have any kind of uh, information for them?
2: Well, I have a website that they can always contact me
1: through
2: the website. Go, go. And that's com.
1: Okay, great. And, um, okay, so that's, believe it or not, we have like just 20 seconds left, 10 seconds left on the show. So thank you again. And for everyone listening, I thank you for being here. We will be back next week on Coach's Corner. Thank you and good night.